Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast for May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, 2021. Reporting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. This is our 67th episode, and we're talking about foreign affairs today, an article by Gordon H. Hansen entitled, Can Trade Work for Workers? How are you this morning? I'm doing fine. Uh, how are you this sunny morning in Denver, Colorado, David? I'm doing okay. I was uh, afflicted by a migraine last night, but I'm back. I'm back, baby. Uh, we had <laughs> Star Wars Day yesterday. Today is uh, tequila and Mexican beer day, but I'm just drinking coffee. Um, I might have to get some tacos later. And I think that with Cinco de Mayo, it's a lot like Hanukkah and that it's not Mexican Independence Day, you know? But people just assume that it is because it's the one holiday they know that's associated with uh, with Mexico. Sort of mm-hmm. like if, you, if you're a Gentile, if you're a Goy, you just think, oh, what's the most important holiday in the Jewish calendar? Probably Hanukkah. It's the one I've heard of. Happens around Christmas. So uh, today is Cinco de Mayo. I think it has something to do with the Battle of... Guadalupe Hidalgo? Did I just make that up? Let me see. Do you know that's like people? That's like people. uh, I've heard people say Christmas uh, that are not Christians. They say Christmas. Uh, Oh yeah, that's that's uh, Santa Claus's birthday, isn't it? I says not exactly. Well, Christmas is actually the second holiest holiday in the Christian calendar because Easter is the first. That's true. Cinco de Mayo. Let's just do before we jump into the article a little history. (laughs) The Battle of Puebla. I don't know where I came up with Guadalupe Hidalgo. Sounded good in my head. But it's the celebration of the victory and the Battle of Puebla. There you go. Now we know. Now we can get into today's article, which is not about this at all, but it's tangentially... Oops. <laughs> That's today. It's tangentially related to this because the article and this issue of foreign affairs is about... Uh, Workers. Workers, and it's about global trade. And so we here in America are certainly affected by the fortunes of the Mexican economy when it comes to the global trade outlook, manufacturing jobs here, manufacturing jobs there, the price of goods for non-manufacturing workers like you and I. Um, They all sort of play into this uh, global trade picture. And so we're going to look at trade and i think that he does discuss nafta in this article so let's should we jump into it yeah uh the right way to redress harms and redistribute gains i will say that redressing harms and redistributing gains sounds an awful lot like a commie to me he sounds like a commie but is he a commie let's find out gordon h hansen is the peter wertheim professor in urban policy at the harvard kennedy school so he is in academia. That doesn't necessarily mean he's a commie. Should we look him up? Uh, we can look him up after the article. Let's, yeah. Let's, because, because let's see what he says, and then let's look at where he came from to see uh, why he said what he said. And and uh, a lot of what people say really comes from, uh, like you say, where you stand is where you sit. Uh, mm-hmm. depends on where you sit. A lot of what people say comes from uh, who they are and where they are, where they've come from, and that type of thing. And it's interesting. I find that academicians, um, a lot of times, 
it is more grounded in theory. And mm -hmm. that theory may be influenced by, if it's, it's something you disagree with or if it's something you agree with, the theory itself is influenced by the area of scholarship that they've gone into. Um, so that little niche of scholarship becomes a click and they pursue research down a certain road where they do it because the journals are publishing that avenue. And if you sort of pursued research down a separate branch of the scholarship, you may not get published. So it's sort of, it's, it's a micro internet, I guess. You know how on YouTube you do certain things, you talk about YouTube drama, and you'll get a million views. Well, we don't do that. We talk about foreign affairs, and we certainly aren't getting a million views. But that doesn't mean that the topic shouldn't be discussed. I mean, just because the eyeballs aren't there doesn't mean that the scholarship is bad. And, of course, this guy, by being a chaired professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, which is their school of government, I'm sure that he knows what he's talking about at least as much as we do, which is one of the reasons why we do these foreign affairs. <laughs> they do get experts to write essays on policy, and your back-of-the-envelope calculations may disagree with their policy, but they've looked into this more than you have. I mean, you can rest assured they have. So rather than a lot of the news uh, outlets will just start with what they think about the subject, we start with what the experts say about mm -hmm. the subject. And then we comment on what the experts say. And so, uh, I don't know, I, I, uh, for example, if, if uh, on this uh, trade war, uh, trade work for workers, uh, if he's an economist, he'll have a perspective. If he's a social, uh, uh, public policy professor, he has he will have another, another perspective on how this works. Uh, if he's on, if he's an anthropologist or uh, sociology, uh, if he's a professor in sociology or even, uh, even international business. Yeah. So, so the depends on their scholar, scholar, scholarly approach, their academic approach and background they'll bring that perspective to the topic. And so I really like what we do, David. I, mm -hmm. I, I like that uh, we start with the experts, their perspective, their background, their intelligence, uh, and they're very good at what they say. But then we back up and say, okay, uh, why are they saying it that way? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they are in academia. Well, and also I think that we don't get too many clues, but we see that he's the professor in urban policy. Correct. Which is the one clue we get, and he's at Harvard, so I mean, I'm sure that he's a respected scholar, because Harvard's a respected school. It seems like he has a, a named chair, uh, the Peter Wertheim professor, but urban policies are one clue, I think, as to what his politics may be, and yet academicians often, their arguments stem from theory, not from their politics, if that makes sense. That's why I like reading articles by academicians. It's not, he's not beholden to some sort of party line. He's more beholden to the scholarship that he's done throughout his career. And I think right. that's, those are the types of voices you don't really hear on cable news. Because, like I said, you know how your scholarship may go down a certain narrow path because that's what's getting published? Well, on cable news, animosity, animus, is the currency. So if you can't say something that enrages... You don't get invited on. 
So if you have a very deliberate, slow, well-reasoned prescription for potential policy remedies to problems, you probably won't get asked to be on TV. Um, and especially if it might work, God forbid, they're not going to put you on TV. Like they're going to put you, they're going to put you in a uh, university. They're going to throw you in an institution. And you'll be publishing <laughs> papers and journals no one reads for the rest of your life. Um, and I don't read the the hard journals of of politics and foreign affairs, but I do read the layperson's journal, which is foreign affairs. I think it's well curated. And like you said, one thing that we do is we look at what the experts have to say, and we don't paraphrase what they have to say. We read the whole darn article, and I and we've had discussions on this. Is it too boring? And it's like who cares? We're not saying this is our well. We are saying this is our interpretation after we read for you the entire article. So you can have your own interpretation. We're not skewing the what the, we're not skewing this guy's words. I mean, we're not telling you what to believe and what to think. We're showing you what they're saying, and then we're telling what we think. Yes. Big difference. Very big difference from, from the, uh, the news media and some of the news outlets. So we've riffed for about 10 minutes. Should we get into the article finally? <laughs> yeah, let's actually read the article. Okay. Can Trade Work for Workers? The Right Way to Redress Harms and Redistribute Gains by Gordon H. Hansen in the May-June 2021 Foreign Affairs. For decades, the promise of globalization has rested on a vision of a world in which goods, services, and capital would flow across borders as never before. Whatever its other features and components, contemporary globalization has been primarily about trade and foreign investment. Today's globalized economy has been shaped to a large extent by a series of major trade agreements that were sold as win-win propositions. Corporations, investors, workers, and consumers would all benefit from lowered barriers and harmonized standards. American advocates of this view claim that deals such as the North American Free Trade Agreement would supercharge growth, create jobs, and strengthen the United States' standing as the world's largest and most important economy. According to then-President George H.W. Bush, NAFTA means more jobs and more, more exports, and more exports means more American jobs. A quarter of a century later, <clears throat> such optimism appears profoundly misplaced. NAFTA and other deals did boost growth, and free trade remains a net benefit for the U.S. economy as a whole. But the overall gains have been far less dramatic than promised, and many American workers suffered when well-paid manufacturing jobs dried up as factories moved abroad. Those who managed to stay employed saw their wages stagnate. The federal government, meanwhile, did little to build a safety net to catch those who lost out. Unsurprisingly, Americans have complicated views on trade. Although a majority of voters see free trade as a good thing, barely one-third believe that it creates jobs or lowers prices. In response, political elites and elected officials across the ideological spectrum have scrambled to distance themselves from free trade policies and from the major pacts of the past. For its part, the Biden administration has made a noble-sounding but vague pledge to pursue, pursue a worker-centric trade policy. The specifics are still unclear, but such an approach will likely include more aggressive so-called Buy American provisions, which require government agencies to, preference to, to give preference to U.S. products when making purchases, increase pressure on trading partners to respect workers' collective bargaining rights, and a hawkish relationship with China. Despite the rhetoric, these proposals put the administration well within the 
bounds of existing U.S. trade policy, tweaking the margins here and there. That approach is unlikely to fix the problems caused by free trade, which, despite the appeal of protectionist talking points, isn't going anywhere. Instead, the Biden administration should establish targeted domestic programs that protect workers from the downsides of globalization. A responsible policy would capture the gains of free trade, but make up for domestic losses. In recent years, the United States has done neither. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's uh, quite a beginning section. Mm-hmm. I think here's what I take from it. When you think about trade policy, you think about the levers that a president can pull. And those levers, even if he pulls, and let's go back to his, uh, what he feels like Biden's trade policy will end up looking like, in this sentence. The specifics are still unclear, but such an approach will likely include more aggressive so-called Buy American provisions, which require, require government agencies to give preference to U.S. products, increase pressure on trading partners to respect workers' collective bargaining rights, and a hawkish relationship with China. Those are sort of the levers that you can pull. And he's saying those are status quo, you know. Uh, and then what I think he's going to advocate for, because I knew he was a commie, is spending money at home. Um, don't think of trade as a problem between other nations. Think about trade as improving your own economy at home. I think that's what he's going to say. Yeah, when you say commie, you mean uh, <laughs> communistic views. I, yeah, when I, I, I'm joking. I mean, he's, yeah, going well, to, well, yeah. he's going to advocate for domestic policies that sort of take those left behind and provide them government assistance, which you don't think of as trade policy. That's what I'm saying. Okay, um, because it sounded like you were saying that he was uh, an advocate of Russian policy. And oh, Soviet no, policy. no, no. I mean, uh, politics. Well, so. I, I think one of the problems is that it's how pe it's used. people are so reactionary that any socialist program, like a socialist program that takes manufacturing workers that have lost their jobs and sort of says the problem with trade is that trade is good. But these pockets of people lose out, and we need to figure out domestic programs that help them remain a vital part of the economy so they don't feel left behind. That's a socialist program. And people say, well, we can't do that. That's socialist. And socialist is one step from communist. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying that would be the argument against him. It's like, no, we can't right. help our people. That's the wrong thing to do. Should we continue on? Or what, what are your impressions from the opening? Well, uh, a number. Well, first of all, what he's saying, I'm I'm saying, yeah, that I can see how uh, over the last 20, 30 years that the uh, the focus has been from globalization to protecting our our workers. Uh, but uh, from my perspective, when I read this, the feeling I got was he's looking at uh, a problem that has emerged over. The decades, and he's saying, "What's our short-term fix?" Now, there's what should we do today to fix it today? Uh, well, is that going to cause problems in the future? And it seems to me like uh, when you talk about globalization, you talk about uh, like replacing NAFTA or having other types of agreements to where it's not a win-lose, it's not a zero-sum game. 
uh, globalization should not be a zero-sum game that maybe it has in the past. And I'm thinking maybe what it should be is looking at a at a non-zero-sum uh, approach to a win-win type type uh, relationships globally. Mm-hmm. That you're not just looking at uh, the strong, uh, the strong, the first strong, the second strong, you know, just neighbors. You're looking at the whole globe, global uh, uh, theater, and, and that's my first thought. And I'm not in this area, uh, but I am in decision analysis, and I think of uh, the decision process here. Are we being, are we limiting? Is this limiting the view to something that is going to solve something today, without a view uh, for the next next within months or a year, versus within the next decades. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I thought of. And, uh, but yeah, we can go on. Yeah. Do you want to read the next section? Yeah, big, big talk. The skepticism about globalization that now pervades U.S. politics has its origin in the failed promises of 1990s trade liberalization. NAFTA and China's accession, accession to the World Trade Organization disrupted economic life in the small and medium-sized American cities that once formed the country's manufacturing backbone. Resentment over those changes helped Donald Trump win the presidency in 2016. If President Joe Biden hopes to launch or modernize U.S. trade policy, he will have to address this legacy. NAFTA was a bipartisan effort initiated in 1990 by Bush and concluded in 1994 by his successor, Bill Clinton. Leaders in Canada, Mexico, and the United States heralded the deal as an economic miracle. Mexican pres- President Carlos Salinas, Salinas uh, de Catali and his aides promised that the agreement would turn Mexico into the next South Korea. Clinton waxed poetic, not only about conventional economic gains but f- from trade, but also about how NAFTA would foster more equality, better preservation of the environment, and a greater possibility of world peace. These were bold but arguably irresponsible claims. In the end, NAFTA did what standard economic models predicted. It delivered modest net benefits, primarily by giving U.S. companies access to manufacturing components at lower prices, enhancing their competitive advantage in global markets. But NAFTA worked no miracles. Although the deal hastened the industrialization of northern Mexico, the south of the country remained poor. Overall productivity growth languished. And Mexican immigration to the United States surged to new highs during the late 1990s and early years of this century. Contrary to Clinton's and Salinas' promises, a responsible policy would capture the gains of free trade that make up for domestic losses. In the United States, the aggregate gains in real income from NAFTA were positive but meager. Less than one-tenth, 0.1% by some estimates. Mexico's economy, roughly the size of Ohio's at the time of the deal signing, simply wasn't large enough for the agreement to have a substantial impact. Running for U.S. president as an independent populist in 1992, the American businessman Ross Perot famously predicted that Americans would hear a giant sucking sound as jobs crossed the border into Mexico. No enormous shift materialized, 
But many U.S. workers, especially those in labor-intensive manufacturing industries, did lose their jobs. Some eventually found employment in new truck and jet engine factories, but most did not. For them, the upside that NAFTA presented to others offered no solace. Freer trade in North America, however, was just the warm-up act for real show. China's emergence as a global economic powerhouse, a process that began in the late 1970s under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, uh, who reduced the state's stranglehold on the economy, allowed private enterprise to flourish, and opened China up to limited forms of foreign investment. The impact of Beijing's outward turn was immense. Almost overnight, China became the world's factory. Between 1990 and 2015, the country's share of global manufacturing exports rose to 2.8% to 18.5%. Aside from the speed and scale of the transformation, however, another factor amplified the disruptive power of Chinese growth. In the 1990s and at the turn of the 21st century, the Chinese model of export-driven growth relied almost exclusively on labor-intensive products, apparel, footwear, and other consumer goods that China could produce more cheaply than other countries, owing to its low labor costs, its proximity to suppliers in the East Asia, and a willingness to let private companies make exacting demands on workers. Although China has since diversified its economy, this initial surge in labor-intensive exports proved deadly for U.S. manufacturing. Between 2000 and 2011, the United States' share of global manufacturing exports slumped from 14% to 8.6%. And according to my research with the economists David Autor and David Dorn, between 600,000 and 1 million U.S. manufacturing jobs disappeared. Okay. So NAFTA had less of an impact than Chinese uh, ascendancy. That's what he's saying here, right? That's right. And, and he, he's, he's saying uh, what NAFTA did was allow what was indirectly allow China to grow well, and have the servants. Sort of. I mean, I think he's saying that they're unrelated, but they're similar. So for freer trade in North America was just the warm-up show. China's emergence as a global economic powerhouse. So China was allowed into the WTO, and that was sort of similar. The logic was similar to, let me just pull this up real quick. Um, China in WTO. When were they allowed? Uh, December 11 December 20, 2001. So that was seven years after NAFTA was signed that uh, China became a member of the world. So they were allowed to be a full member of the global economic community. And they took advantage of that opportunity. You know, they sort of aggressively moved into manufacturing sectors. But even when we visited there in 2007, um, we saw that the low products that are low on the value chain, textiles, toys, shoes, they weren't being made in those factories anymore. And China's competitive advantage in labor cost was losing out to Honduras, Vietnam. 
Um, but their true competitive advantage wasn't low labor costs, it was scale. When you can have 100,000 people go to a factory and make one thing a day, you have more scale than anybody else. You know, if 100,000 people doing the same job, they can't really do that all over the globe, but they can do that in China. Um, that's what we saw. And I, I mean, he makes some good points about NAFTA, people sort of bemoan NAFTA, but but maybe China's ascendancy had a better share. But I think also, and I'm sure that he understands this, when you open up the globe to free trade, the inefficiencies in your established system will be exposed. <laughs> and that's kind of what happened. When he says, you know, U.S. manufacturing went from, exports went from, 12% to 8%, you know, that's a 25% drop um, or 33% drop. Do you think that's more exposure of the inefficiencies of our system? Well, I think uh, my impression, uh, I'm not an economist, but my impression is that they're just looking at uh, an argument and that argument is true, but they're not looking at other arguments that would be just the opposite. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're looking at part of the picture, not the whole picture. You're looking at uh, uh, issues that are correct, and they are going to happen. But what they don't look at is that doesn't talk about other forces that are not going to let that happen as much as you think. And it may be very meager growth because it's part of the picture. It's not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And I think to, to that's the impression I got. Yeah. Well, which is actually which is actually very common. Uh, people will uh, argue a point, and that point they're arguing is correct, and it's logical and it's powerful, but that point is part of a larger reality, mm -hmm. <laughs> and in that the reality that there's less there's less uh, uh, attractive, less exotic type of issues, and more basic fundamental issues. Uh, that are overlooked because they're not as exciting, but they are powerful. Yeah. And so I think that's that's the impression I got from what he was saying here. Also, th I, thinking back over the years, you know, you this is trades from 1990 to the present. But when you look at today, uh, people are struggling pretty bad. And without, you know, the government bailing out, sending checks and hands unemployment benefits, people would be struggling worse. And at the same time, you see that the stock market is booming. I think when you look at deals like NAFTA or China's entrance into the WTO, what you see is the people who make the decisions aren't the people who will be hurt by those decisions. So they say, oh, if we pass NAFTA, we can produce components more cheaply. We can sell the product at the same price to the U.S. market and the economy won't collapse. Now manufacturing jobs will be lost, a million manufacturing jobs. Um, that's what he says, between 600,000 and 1 million. And it's like, but there's 300 million people. We can take one third of 1% of the people losing their jobs if that means that our bottom line grows. And so the powers that be get NAFTA passed. And, and the thing is, it is one third of 1% of Americans that lost their job. But those people are real people with real families, with real uh, priorities, with bills, with you know, and a million people is a lot of people. So, like you said, you can look at one aspect of this, 
But there's a lot of aspects to it. And you could say, oh, a million people is a lot of people. And they'd say, yeah, well, that's the price of progress. Oh, that's how you define progress. Another way to define <laughs> another way to define progress, instead of having uh, the rich get richer, uh, is or the the uh, become a powerhouse in a certain area, is uh, let's make let's spread it out and have uh, help everyone. So we have a whole country behind our economy. We may not be as uh, as wealthy as we could be, but uh, we don't we don't have the, the wealth, but we have the foundation. Mm -hmm. And once once you go down to all workers, once you go back down to the workers and the workers are there, uh, you're going to have a foundation that's extremely strong. You have the momentum, you have the inertia. Uh, when you put all your money to the top and to the manufacturing, it becomes top heavy and those things can crumble and tall. Uh, uh, can, can crumble and fall if you see what I'm trying to say I do uh, th theoretically but you I can think say it better than I can. but I think that if you're a captain of industry or you're the head of a you know chamber of commerce like the US Chamber of Commerce like you represent business interests you say this is good for the bottom line and that's the metric we're focused on yes there's going to be some externalities and those externalities are real people who are hurt by this but I think that, uh, and when you look at it, I think that he goes into it perhaps later because I read this article already. There is, on the level, like these trade deals haven't been bad. They've just been bad for a few people. Um, I mean, they haven't given us the gains that we were promised. The gains are much more paltry, but they're still gains. So you could say we've benefited from this. And yet there's this huge population of people that have been screwed by this but that's sort of like anything you know i think in any industry you say oh we're implementing an oracle-based erp system and the people in the filing department that file every invoice they're all going to lose their jobs because all of our records are going electronic well if you're one of the 20 people in the filing department you say this oracle thing stinks <laughs> I, don't, I don't want an erp system to to track inventory. I've done it on an Excel spreadsheet for the last 15 years. And it's like, but that's the price of progress. Like, you know, one person can do 10 people's jobs if it's automated. So, I mean, that's, I guess. Well, now you're moving into my area. So what happens is that ERP system comes in, it does it one way. And the people, the hundreds of people to do it their way works in their part of the company. And now, the ERP system does it one way, which is not the right way that has been that has worked for the past twenty years, and now it just doesn't work. Yeah, or no, or it does or it does work. Um, you sort of get people to make it work, and you say, "Wow, that cost five million dollars," and it's like, "Yeah, but we eliminated one hundred staff that were making fifty thousand dollars a year, so we get payback in one year." Well, another way to look at it is that. Historically, uh, there's been the bottom line of ec economic, economic bottom line. Are we making profit? Or are we making growth, uh, financial growth? Uh, well, recently, there's been a triple bottom line. No, maybe we start looking at at uh, the economic bottom line, the environmental bottom line, and the political and the people. And so maybe there needs to be more 
uh, bottom lines other than just three. Maybe start looking at other types of bottom lines, uh, like how well do we fit in a domestic economy that's going to be uh, uh, have a have an inertia and a momentum that is going to be strong. It can't go away like like the end runs of the world. You can't get top heavy that all of a sudden one day it falls. It's going to be strong and it's going to be hard to go away. And then another bottom line would be, hey, what about how we fit into a global uh, uh, picture that's going to be uh, uh, that's going to be solid, that's going to be uh, sustainable for a long period of time. So I think the sustainability aspect of it, rather than just the growth ap- aspect of it, if you grow too fast too soon, then you have a danger of falling hard uh, eventually. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but like take the Enrons of the world. Yeah, Jeffrey Skilling and Ken Lay went to jail, but the Chinese guy, Wei Pai, I think it was his name, he's the largest landowner, I think, in the state of Colorado. And he got out early. He got out early. And your triple bottom line assumes that the, every corporation, if you take the Enron example, wants to act in good faith. But some of them just want to make a quick buck. Well, from my, from my observation, the triple bottom line really means that uh, you're willing to sacrifice immediate growth with long-term equity building. Uh, you're going to build yourself slowly but, but solidly. Uh, and if you keep changing with the times uh, and you don't you don't go into one direction, uh, you have a better chance of being around but the, uh, but, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Yes, but wouldn't you agree that there are some people who are unwilling to sacrifice long-term growth for immediate profits? Absolutely. That's, I think that's what this article, to me, that's what I'm thinking about when I read this article. And wouldn't you agree uh, when, when the growth is the metric that you can use to get reelected in a four-year or six-year or two-year election cycle, that a country may advocate for policies that favor immediate growth over, I mean, immediate profit over long-term growth. And so you, you don't get a focus on the triple bottom line in terms of how you craft policy. It's all short term. And that's that's where this this concept of sustainability uh, and long term growth is just headbutting against our political system of every four years. You're going to try to get elected and so you're going to get a short term uh, type objectives. Yeah, I mean, you I'm take- not saying get rid. I'm not saying our political system is wrong. I'm saying we have to rethink how we move forward as a nation within this political system. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's use it uh, for positive results rather than uh, uh, self-serving short-term results. Yeah. Well, you take Clinton, Obama, and Biden. When they beat, well, Obama didn't run against an incumbent because George Bush's two terms were over. But both Clinton and Biden beat incumbents. And then Obama beat a Republican coming off of a Republican presidency. And what did all three of those races have in common? The economy was in the tank. In 92, the economy was screwed up. In 2008, the economy was screwed up worse. In 2020, the economy was screwed up even worse. So it's easy to point to the last four years and say, look, this guy's an incompetent. We gave him the reins of government. Now the economy's in the tubes. Vote for me because he sucks. Um, and, you, and you can get elected that way, and we've seen that. 
But the question is, how can you change uh, the uh, the American uh, voter's mind uh, from what can you give me today versus what can we build for the future? I don't know. That's I, not that doesn't seem know. to be the strategy. The strategy seems to be because it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, My the question is, how can we make that work? If you're the party that tanks the economy every time, the strategy can't be. Well, they could say we're the party of workers, but really it's we're the party that's not evil. So, yes, if you elect this guy, you might have four years of sustained and manageable growth. You might be free from um, the deregulation that causes a massive collapse of the financial system where we bail out all the huge banks, but your retirement account gets decimated. You might be free from all that stuff, but they're evil. So you have to vote for us. That's sort of the argument they're making now. Um, that's the illogical nature of arguments, but it works. Yeah. That's the fallacy of arguments, but hey, it works. Mm -hmm. It has worked. It is working, and it probably will work in the future. The question is, my my question out there, I guess more altruistic, how can we move to a better, a better world, a better country, a, a better political system that serves the people, not in in a today and in the future, mm -hmm. both. Well, I mean, a better world or a more equitable world means that if you're in the 1%, a more equitable world is worse for you. If you've managed to claw your way into the 1%, you see a more equitable world as the government just sort of changing the rules and taking away what you've earned. That's right. You're right. Um, shall we continue? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the China shock. Part of what made the surge in Chinese exports so painful for American workers was that many of them lived and worked in industry towns. When manufacturing jobs in those towns disappeared in response to the rising import competition, it wasn't just factory workers who suffered. Everyone else did too. Consider Martinsville, a small town in Southern Virginia that is part of the manufacturing belt that stretches through North Carolina and into Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. In 1990, 41% of the working age population in three countries surrounding counties surrounding Martinsville worked in manufacturing, with half of those workers employed by just two industries, furniture and knitted outerwear. This made Martinsville what economists call an industry cluster, a place that enjoys productivity boost from workers and firms specializing in a narrow set of industries operating in close proximity to one another. That benefit, which the British economist Alfred Marshall famously identified in his analysis of 19th century Lancashire cotton textile industry, explains why firms in certain industries tend to locate near one another. Specialization, however, also leaves regional markets exposed in the event of an adverse economic shock, which is precisely what China's rise represented. Between 1990 and 2012, furniture was one of the U.S. industries hit hardest by Chinese import penetration. For Martinsville, the impact was devastating. Its main industry, furniture and fixtures, saw employment drop nationally from 378,000 to 283,000 between 2000 and 2007. Many of Martinsville's factories closed, 
closed. And by 2018, only 12% of the area's adults still worked in the sector. This pattern of concentrated job losses in manufacturing repeated itself across the United States. It was one of the most immediate consequences of the China trade shock, a period of rapid Chinese productivity and export growth following the country's market-oriented reforms. In theory, there are many ways in which a community such as the Martinsvilles could adjust to a major change in the economic landscape. Its furniture and textile firms could have invested in innovations that improved product quality and allowed them to maintain their market share. Local governments could have attracted new firms seeking to take advantage of a newly available labor force. Or workers could simply have given up on Martinsville and moved elsewhere in search of gainful employment. In reality, however, communities rarely adapted in these ways, for reasons economists still don't entirely understand. When workers without a college degree lose their jobs, few choose to move elsewhere, even when local market conditions are poor. Consequently, manufacturing job losses usually result in lower earnings for former factory workers and lower employment rates in their community. Martinsville was no exception. The proportion of the working age population that had jobs, a strong barometer of economic well-being, fell from a healthy 73% in 1990 to an anemic 53% in 2015. The same story played out in hundreds of places across the United States. Why was the China shock so disruptive? After all, job losses in the United States are common. In a typical year, millions of jobs are eliminated, but slightly more jobs are created, and so U.S. Ex employment expands. That's how the labor market normally operates. Mass job loss due to factory closures, however, is not normal. Among workers without a college degree, manufacturing pays relatively well. When those good jobs disappear, so too do the generous paychecks. The result is essentially a localized recession. Displaced workers spend less on restaurants, entertainment, home renovations, childcare, and other services, pushing the economy into a downward spiral of further job losses and spending cuts. Although the newly jobless can, can and do often claim unemployment benefits, these cover only a fraction of previous earnings and expire after six months. The Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, established by Congress in 1962, covers up to two years of basic retraining for workers displaced by import competition. But between 2000 and 2007, when Chinese exports were doing the most damage to U.S. manufacturing, the program was still small and provided workers with little help. Autor, Dorn, and I estimate that for every $1,000 increase in Chinese imports per U.S. worker, TAA provided just 23 cents per worker in benefits. For able-bodied Americans who wish to continue working, government benefits were paltry. Still, the long decline of U.S. manufacturing employment is not the result of international trade alone. Job losses in the sector since the 1960s likely have had much more to do with technological change than globalization. Other forces, including deunionization and the declining real value of the minimum wage, have also suppressed incomes for less educated workers. Yet wage and employment losses from foreign competition stand out because they were highly localized and because policymakers didn't prepare for them. Rather than lifting all boats, globalization pushed the Martinsvilles of the United States into deindustrialization and decay. These tectonic shifts gave many Americans the sense that they had been left behind, victims of globalization and free trade. There you go. Yeah, and, that, and that set the stage for the 2016 election. Yeah. Um, so there's domestic political impacts, but... I, I see it like a company. 
if a company makes innovations and improvements, if you're one of the people that's hurt by those innovations or improvements, um, it's a tragedy if you lose your job because a company sort of automates a manufacturing process or automates a, a back office process. You say, that's stupid. And then they may automate it, like you said, and then it doesn't work. Or the net benefits is the same. The company might have the same exact bottom line. They just shed workers. And it's like, well, what was the point of that? And it's like, well, I don't know, you know. Um, so you see that here. But also, those people got out-competed in some way. And it, it's tough to say that, but it's like manufacturing jobs pay relatively well. When global trade shows that if everyone's allowed to compete on the same playing field, a company with lower labor costs can out-compete you, you're going to lose your job. Yep. What are uh, your thoughts? Uh, well, uh, reading this, it, it, it's it was it was very interesting. Again, that he looks at the uh, manufacturing labor. Uh, one point he says it, it. I can't find it now. It says it uh, baffled economists when they lost their jobs. They didn't leave the area. They didn't move. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I. And I, I understand that, and I think what they don't what they don't see is that they they see uh, the worker uh, from top down. Oh, the jobs over there go over there. Jobs over there go over. There. No, uh, their home is there. Mm -hmm. Their families are there. Their community is there, uh, and so they're saying, oh well, well, we can let's just shift everyone over here and shift everyone over here and. And uh, to, it's all about the economy. Mm -hmm. It's not always about the economy yeah. to the American worker, especially uh, the uh, uh, the manufacturing, the, the uh, less educated. They're they're. I don't. I don't say. I'll say less educated. I don't want to say less intelligent. Yeah. Uh, they're they're smart. They just chosen to be a worker because mm -hmm. that's their life, and they're happy at that life. And that's that's the American dream to live a life that's happy. And so they're looking at this from an economic perspective and a trade perspective. And these workers, uh, uh, the, the, they don't look at it from an economic perspective. Uh, economics is only part of their life. A major part of their life is being happy with their community and they're happy with their society. Mm -hmm. I get that. I get that really well. And so again, it, it showed that this is looking at just the economic part. If you look at just only one factor, economics and trade and this kind of thing, uh, and you're not looking at all the other multiple factors, then you're going to be lopsided in your analysis and not lopsided in your decisions. I think we need to look more of a holistic approach uh, to the worker, to economy and to America and to international economics. Yeah, I, I uh, an analogy is that what you're describing. When I was a kid, which, you know, I haven't gone to the dentist in 20 years because I'm an adult. But when I was a kid, I used to go to the dentist. And, uh, you know, you would brush and stuff. And the dental hygienist would act like brushing your teeth and flossing was literally the most important thing in the world. 
and they would lecture you on, you need to brush longer, you need to brush better, you need to floss. And you'd leave there thinking, wow, um, you know, dental hygiene is clearly the most important thing because this adult just told me that it is. But then you realize, no, that's their world. That's not your world. It, <laughs> um, that's what you're saying, right? So for an economist, it's like, well, the labor market has opened up jobs in Minnesota. Why doesn't someone move from North Carolina to Minnesota to get a job? It's like, because that's not how people function in the real world. That's um, right. It's not reality. They're not a unit of labor. They're a person. They're a person that has roots in that community. And this is, like you said, so that's the set the stage for the 2016 election. What would you rather have? Because if you look at what he said, it's like they could have tried to uh, retool their factories and offer higher quality products. They could have tried to get industries to come in because they have a specialized and trained labor force that's ready to roll. They didn't do any of those things, and these people just lost their jobs and the industry went away. Well, what would you rather have? A politician that comes in and says, we're going to provide retraining to make you competitive in the industries that still exist here. And you say, I don't know about that. Or you have a politician that says, remember when things were good? I'm going to bring that back. And there's no plan to get back there because that's not under a, that's not under a politician's control. They can't bring back the good old days when China didn't exist. China's going to continue to exist and there's nothing a, pol- a politician could do about it. So re- whereas retraining is a solution, bringing back the good old days is a fantasy. But would you rather vote for the fantasy that requires no work and just allows you to go back to the way things were or the solution which requires you to do something? Well, not knowing how to solve, that's a very good way to explain it, David, and I totally understand that. And because I have a lack of way, I don't know what the answer is. Specifically, I'll say that maybe we need to start thinking about creating a proactive type of politics for the future rather than reactive for the present. Mm Mm-hmm. But how do you do that? I really don't know. Yeah. Uh, And actually, I would say one person cannot know how to do that. It takes a village. It takes everybody. And it takes all of us to understand that concept of being proactive for the future. And to be proactive for the future, sometimes you have to kind of like sacrifice and compromise for the present a little bit. you can't have the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. You've got to have to compromise in the middle so that the non-zero-sum game says we all get better. Not as much as part of us, but all of us will be better than than uh, when the top when the, when the ones at the top fall. But being more proactive and less reactive, more proactive for the future uh, and uh, less reactive for the present. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to do it. But yeah. that's kind of what I see. And I mean, without specifics, it's just a platitude, right? It is. But I think it's the beginning of rethinking uh, public policy, rethinking uh, uh, political policy, uh, rethinking how do we deal with with the Martinvilles? How do we deal with uh, different regions of our economy, with the manufacturing area, with the service area, with the, with the technology area? How do we deal with that in the future? Uh, are we just massaging the present and moving things around, but we're not really solving anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's these things are going to keep happening 
unless we address uh, some of the uh, some of the systemic causes that keep making it happen. Yeah. Well, what happened? What happened in Martinville could happen in almost any industry in the future, unless we mitigate uh, the risk of that happening. Yeah. Well, and there's I've, a lot of smart people in this world. There's very a lot of smart people. They can figure this out together if we come together instead of having bipartisan. I mean, instead of having uh, 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 what I'm trying to think of, if we have everyone coming together to think about how to solve this thing, we can solve it. Yeah, I mean, or you could have someone say, well, I ran the numbers and Martinsville are a casualty of progress. Americans are better off because places like Martinsville exist. You know, when these people lose their jobs and these regional economies are devastated, more Americans on, you know, because these 80,000 people are suffering, 3 million people benefit. So, you know, you could see that as a problem or you could see it as that's a function of what we've chosen. We were proactive and these people refuse to leave. And so they're suffering. You know what I mean? You can look at a problem in a vacuum and say, that's a problem. We need to prevent this from happening ever again. But it's difficult to say that's a problem. And solving that problem won't create a round of other problems or undo the the whole point why it was a problem in the first place, made things better for people, you know? Yeah, well, when he starts saying, like Martinville, the first thing I thought of, well, here's an anecdotal issue. Uh, you have to be careful with with uh, uh, examples. It's it's a very good argument uh, for uh, the type of argument that is emotional. Mm -hmm. uh, but back up and uh, and try not to to uh, have anecdotes and have policy on anecdotes. Uh, back up and say, uh, here here's how our nation can move to where uh, even everybody. Everybody can benefit from this, and everyone will get better. Uh, and uh, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Sometimes the Martinvilles do have to change. Uh, but uh, did they? No, they didn't. Yeah. But, I mean, it's easy to say uh, what we need to do is craft policy for everyone to get better. What's hard to say is this is that policy. Now let's all vote for it. I know. That's what I said. Mm -hmm. It's It's very pie in the sky, but... I, I, from what this is saying, it's more reactive rather than saying, here's what could be done to be... Maybe he's going to get into that later. I Maybe. Know. I think this is the final section. But before we go on, you know, a lot of this he's blaming... Well, he's not blaming it. He's saying it's a result of China's rise. And do you want to see something that gives me a little hope? We talk about how can we make our system more efficient, and we use market forces to do that. China, they've used market forces to sort of promote their ascendancy, and yet they still have a central planning element. So I want to tell you all about a little story called okay. The Not-So-Great Mall of China. <laughs> okay. It's in Dongguang Province. It was formerly the New South China Mall. Now it's the South China Mall. Um. I heard about this years ago. It opened in 2005. Here's, here it is in February 2010. It's gigantic. 
So here's what happened. Um, China was making money off of uh, their, you know, manufacturing district. So what they did is in Dongguan, they built a bunch of luxury apartments. Well, the people that worked in Dongguan couldn't afford to live in the apartments, but the central planning said, well, if we have luxury apartments, we need a place for these people to shop at luxury stores. Let's build a luxury mall. And I saw a YouTube video on the not so great mall of China. It's gigantic. It's like the size of the Mall of America. There's one store in it. This guy runs a toy store out of it. He's the only guy in the whole mall. <laughs> and so here's the thing. Yes, market forces might cause hardship um, because the manufacturing jobs in Martinsville couldn't compete on a global stage. And yet if China keeps pumping money into investments like this, that's not efficient either. Now, the reason they do is because if you sit on money, it doesn't go into your GDP. If you build luxury apartments in a great mall, it's part of your GDP, so it's reflected in your growth. And they were trying to hit year-over-year -year growth targets. Well, that desire, it causes inefficiency. So there is some hope for the, the old US of A, don't you think? Yep. Well, there's always hope if yeah. you, uh, there's always hope. I and guess if you just think, think, think about it, think it through and be active. There's no proactive. way. Yeah, there's no way that China can sustainably keep doing projects like that and hope for positive outcomes. You know, their competitive advantage isn't that much, you know, that they can just throw money away, basically. So shall we finish the article? Sure. The upside. Despite these downsides, globalization has undoubtedly helped the U.S. economy. There is robust evidence that freer international trade, including with China, uh, has raised real incomes for U.S. households about 0.2%. Not a transformative amount, but substantially more than the net benefits brought by NAFTA. The backlash against, against globalization rooted in the painful experience of manufacturing communities puts those gains at risk. As the Biden administration seeks to make its trade policies more worker-centric, it would do well to keep that fact in mind. China's rise, although disruptive for many workers, has nevertheless benefited the U.S. economy. The expansion of global value chains, which meant that different stages of manufacturing could happen in different places, allowed U.S.-based multinationals, such as Apple and Qualcomm, to fully commercialize their intellectual property. The patents and product designs for the iPhone, for instance, were developed in California at Apple's Cupertino headquarters. But they became valuable only because the Chinese manufacturing giant Foxcom uh, could assemble huge numbers of handsets in Shenzhen. These innovations are economically valuable for U.S. workers and shareholders, as well as the millions of people lifted out of poverty in China. American consumers benefit from China's rise, too, through lower prices on the goods they purchase. With these advantages in mind, Biden should re-engage with U.S. trading partners and make it a priority to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a wide-reaching trade agreement among a dozen countries. Doing so would deepen the economic relationship between the United States and the countries that will protect, produce parts 
components and goods for the next generation of U.S. technology. It would also strengthen U.S. ties with countries that would like to see Beijing live up to its com commitments as a member of the World Trade Organization, providing Biden with allies he will need if he wants China to improve its behavior. More broadly, the Biden administration should focus on the consequences of job losses rather than their causes. The China trade shock hurt many U.S. workers and their communities, but so too have automation, the Great Recession, and COVID-19 pandemic. And because the scarring effects of job losses are the same whether imports, robots, or a virus is responsible, responses to the damage should not depend on the identity of the culprit. On its own, making U.S. policy on trade more worker-centric won't do the trick. All economic policy needs to be more worker-centric in terms of being attuned to the destructive effects of concentrated layoffs and plant closures. The administration should assume that in response to a large and localized employment decline, few workers without college degrees are likely to relocate, especially older ones who were born in the United States. It is a mistake to believe that because of the dynamic dynamism of the U.S. labor market, localized spikes in joblessness will sort themselves out. They don't, and they require immediate remedies. In its current form, however, the U.S. unemployment insurance program usually extends benefits only when the national economy is in severe recession. Such an approach did little to help communities such as Martinsville weather uh, greater foreign competition. A better system would consider the severity of regional shocks when setting the duration of generosity of benefits. Abundant evidence suggests that such help reduces the fallout from sudden job losses without creating dis disincentives for displaced workers to find new jobs. But policymakers do need to be mindful of that risk if they expand sim similar programs. Doing so would be a matter of providing workers with assistance and incentives to return to work quick, quickly. Also problematic is the way that TAA encourages people to stay out of the labor force to receive approval forms of job training, approved forms of job training. And such training may not even be the best prescription for many workers who might be better off receiving money to help pay off bills or to finance, or to finance a move to a place with better employment prospects. The legislation that created TAA makes such aid possible, but it is rarely offered in practice. An improved system would give workers more flexibility in how they would could use extra unemployment insurance. For some, paying for retaining for occup occupational licensing may be the right choice. For others, covering moving costs or investing in new business might be the better investment. Congress should give workers freedom of choice rather than saddling them with a burden of a one-size-fits-all program. Finally, when considering how to promote job creation in distressed regions, it is important to acknowledge that most of the U.S. jobs that were lost to import competition or automation are not coming back. The China trade shock ended almost a decade ago. Today, China's economy is, today, China's economy is slowing. Its comparative advantage in labor-intensive products is slipping, and its government is directing resources 
away from the private sector and towards state-owned and state-approved enterprises whose record of productivity growth is unimpressive. As China tries to pivot into high-tech sectors such as robotics and artificial intelligence, Bangladesh, Vietnam, and other countries in South and Southeast Asia are positioning themselves to capture market share in the sectors in which China used to dominate. For that reason, it would be a mistake to try to foster a manufacturing renaissance in places such as Martinsville. Furniture and apparel companies may no longer find cheaper labor in China, but they will find it elsewhere. Encouraging optimism about the reshoring of jobs would only lead to more disappointment and might further fuel the backlash against free trade and globalization. The Biden administration should instead try to help communities such as Martinsville thrive. Doing so will require ingenuity and experimentation. Federal officials should give their local and state counterparts wide latitude to pursue policies that are right for the places they serve. Conventional approaches won't necessarily be the most effective. Take taxes, take tax incentives, for example, which officials often use to incise business to move to their states and municipalities. The economist Timothy Bartik has found that although such measures expand output in targeted industries, they appear to do little to raise local living standards. And for each job they create, such incentives impose costs that are nearly 10 times as high as those as some options for creating employment, such as redeveloping defunct industrial sites known as brown, brownfields. So what actually works? Evidence shows that active labor market programs designed to help young and disadvantaged workers succeed in the labor market are a good bet. Successful approaches provide people with assistance in their job searches, help the young build the soft skills required to find an old job, and deliver technical training tailored to promising local industries, such as healthcare or information technology. Other alternatives to tax incentives include attracting college-educated workers to distressed communities through student debt forgiveness or the promise of an immigration visa, providing services to help local firms expand into new markets, and improving access to capital for small and medium-sized businesses many of which are owned by members of minority groups and are poorly connected to existing sources of finance. Helping left behind regions should be a core goal of Biden's administration, but trying to undo three decades of structural change in the global economy isn't the right way to get there. Biden and his team need to be clear eyed about what trade policy can and cannot do to help workers hurt by globalization. The damage has been done and free trade isn't going on anywhere. Protectionist measures and narrow attempts to placate labor unions will do little to help workers who are already hurting or to help others avoid a similar fate. Better to help the unemployed get back on their feet with generous and direct assistance and to create a far stronger safety net uh, to protect future generations of American workers. There we go. We did it. There we go. Yeah, interesting. I would just like to point out mm -hmm. that this is exactly what I said. Of course, I read this. Uh, 
Encouraging optimism about the reshoring of jobs would lead to more disappointment and might further fuel the backlash against free trade and globalization. That's exactly what I was saying before you read this section. That's right. But the thing is, yes, this is bad for if you're an economist because it's not going to happen. Those jobs are gone. But if you're a politician and you want to win, right. there's votes there. That's that's the that's the interesting dichotomy of our system, don't you think? Yes, and uh, these articles uh, by Gordon Hansen are important to call them out. And even though uh, I'm sure uh, a large number of people do not read this, it still needs to be said. And that's the value of these kinds of articles. It it has to be said. People have to start talking about it. They have to start putting it on podcasts. Mm-hmm. We have to we have to start the conversation and, uh, and just keep talking and keep talking and keep talking and keep listening to what other people are saying. Uh, that's why these kind of articles are so important. Yes. And I mean, some of the things like that, like, oh, we're going to make put everything back to the way it was. I see I, when someone says that, I'm like, that's fantasy. Like, you don't have a plan to do that. You're just saying that because that's what people want to hear. And there's something about that that rubs me the wrong way. Um, I don't know. I was I watched this show called The Americans, and it's about these Soviet spies in America. And their next-door neighbor is an FBI agent. <laughs> it's, it's a silly show. But he was embedded <laughs> with some white supremacist bad guys for years. He's an undercover and um, I said, how did he survive in that group for years? And I like this line in this other guy says, I just keep telling them what they want to hear. And that's, uh, I think that's the key to political survival as well. Keep telling people what they want to hear. And whether or not you deliver on it, you say, I may not have delivered on bringing back all those jobs that we lost in the 90s and 2000s. But look at my opponent. He's talking about retraining. He's talking about retooling. He's talking about uh, teaching you guys to become coders. He's talking about giving you guys assistance to move to a different part of the country where there's actually jobs. I'm saying you don't have to do that. Give me a little bit more time, and I'll put things back the way they were when they were good. And what sounds better? Yep. And uh, when it doesn't happen, uh, then you blame someone else for doing it. It wasn't my fault. Yeah. It was the fake news. I tried. Well. I tried to do. Uh, yeah, someone else. I tried to do what was best, and someone else undermined me. Don't blame me. Blame China. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, that's where we are. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, the uh, what you're talking about, David, was is very well taken. You can look at this politically, or you can look at this economically, or you can look at, look at this with uh, urban policy, or even globalization, or you can look at it politically. And uh, unfortunately, that uh, in order for uh, a, a democracy to work, uh, the people have to be informed. Mm-hmm. And if you don't tell the people the truth, if you don't inform the people, if you don't educate the people, then you control them. If you lie to them, 
if you tell them lies and make them believe lies, you're controlling them and you're not moving toward, it's not an advancement, it's a regression. Mm -hmm. You're using them, you're not being useful to them. You're using them, you're controlling them and using them. So uh, again, these kinds of articles that are well thought out, uh, that they have, as far as I'm concerned, they have a perspective, one perspective, one view. Mm -hmm. There are other views, uh, but this view from Gordon Hansen is very important. It's an important view, uh, and and uh, but it's only one view. I think we have to keep listening and keep talking and listen to all views. Mm -hmm. Try to understand, and uh, you have to. Also, David, I, I'm the older I get, the more I'm becoming a stronger, stronger advocate of of blending when you make decisions blending the now with later blending with the current uh, uh solution current uh solving of problems today that has immediate results with long-term building in the future you look at the problem today but also you look at where you want to be in the future you can't just solve it today without looking at the future uh, because if you don't look at the future, what you solve today probably will still be here tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, it, that will be replaced with another problem. And so you have to have a combination of the short term and long term, solving problems today with building something where those problems will not be here in the future. Uh, and it's never ending battle. Uh, it's not saying that you can solve that. Uh, I guess it's more of a journey <laughs> than a destination. But you have to always have that view mm -hmm. of now and later, now and later. And you build it and say, yeah, uh, sometimes you compromise now and later. Uh, but you always have to have that view when you move forward, especially with these with these issues. Yes. And I mean, I think that's a good point. And I just want to close my argument with just going back to the article. So we look at, you know, um, let me just go back a page. This is you know, encouraging people that things are going to go back to the way they are, that's, that's bad. And then he says, what's his, the Biden administration should try to help communities such as Martinsville thrive. But doing so will require ingenuity and experimentation. Now that sentence right there, ingenuity and experimentation, just the word experimentation means failure. It means you put $50 billion into a program and you lose $50 billion. And that's an attack vector for someone that's against you. They said, he tried this and it failed. He's a failure. And it's like, yeah, but he's, he's trying to solve these problems with ingenuity and experimentation. And then when he says, so what actually works, and he talks about active labor market programs, developing soft skills for young workers, that may work now, like what you're saying. But in the economy, it's all timing. So... You know, brownfields, redeveloping defunct brownfields is a good option. That may be a good option now, but there are only so many brownfields you can redevelop before you end up with the not so great malls of America because you're like, oh, that's our solution. And you just dump money into it. I think that there's diminishing returns on every program. Um, so like you're saying, being proactive, like you said, instead of reactive to a lot of this stuff is sort of looking to see not accepting solutions as canon. The solutions might work now because 
that area is underserved. But once that area is served, you have to start looking for other ways to mitigate some of the issues caused by this. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Well, the now and later argument could have, can play out economically, it can play out politically, mm -hmm. it can play out socially, it can play out uh, uh, with the businesses, you know, and uh, regionally. Uh, I guess if we continue on the way we're going, we will solve these things locally. And the growth, if we don't think about our growth, then what we so solve, solve locally, then their growth will naturally happen from that. And it may be more random than well thought out. Mm -hmm. uh, if the decisions we make today create our strategy, whether we think of our strategy or not. Yes. So we should think of our long-term strategy and from that create our decisions today. So we know where we're going. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that in order to do that though, you can't think of just one perspective. You have to think of multiple perspectives from the from the economist, from the political scientist, from the socialist, for, socialistic uh, perspective, uh, and for the uh, for the uh, uh, common worker mm -hmm. from the uh, from your home life, from domestic. So th there's all different perspectives you have to think of at the same time, and you think, oh, well, that's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't think about it and you should try to uh, attack it and try to approach it. Mm -hmm. To me, that's that's a solution, more of a holistic approach uh, to everything we do. Well, how can that work in a democracy? The people have to want it. Yeah, they have they have to stop chasing pipe dreams. Chasing rainbows, chasing unicorns that people promise them with lies because you're being used. Yeah, but. There's also, I guess what I, the point I want to make is it will require ingenuity and ex experimentation um, to solve these problems. And that means, I think, by definition, there's going to be failure. And that failure will be the argument against doing anything else ever again. Say, we tried this and it failed. So why should we ever try anything ever again? Let's just keep things the way that they were. And I fear that that's the way it's going to be because that's the way it always has been. <laughs> to, uh, and experimentation also implies failure. So why would a politician want to stick out their neck when the experimentation, the failure will be seen within an election cycle, but the positive results won't be seen until you're out of office for five, 10 years. That, that makes it tough. It's the system, our political system isn't structured in a way to sort of set things up for long-term growth. You're right, I agree. And what I'm saying is to solve that problem, the American people have to step up and say, no, we're gonna look at this differently. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the people in the United States, we're, we're, we're gonna look at this differently. And judging by how poorly we've done with COVID, I don't think we have the mentality to think long-term. No, we don't. But we need people like uh, uh, articles like Gordon Hansen, articles like other articles in, in the foreign affairs, podcasts like what we're doing. People just have to start talking about it and raising the issues and challenging, mm -hmm. challenge, challenging each other. We have to start talking about it. 
Because yes. if you don't, it'll never happen. If we sort of start a dialogue like we have today that solutions will require sacrifice and they'll require time, maybe people's mindset, they could start wrapping their minds around that fact. Like something's bad. I want it to be better today. And if someone learns that's not the way the world works, but if we start making sacrifices today, it may be better five years from now. And people don't like to think that way, but I guess what you're saying, or what I'm taking from what you're saying is, I, th- I say people don't think that way. And you say people could think that way if we start encouraging it. Um, and either we accept as gospel truth that people don't think that way and we just sort of throw our hands up and say there's nothing we can do, or we start examining stuff like that and hopefully by us doing it and everyone else in the world, you know, other people advocating for this sort of mindset, it may become infectious. We can do it. Mm-hmm. We could do it. It's going to make a better America. It's going to make a better world. And it has to start somewhere. It starts with individuals. We have to start thinking a bit, thinking it this way and talking it and listening mm-hmm. and understanding and uh if you never start doing it, it'll never happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that maybe we just solved all the world's problems. Well, we're trying. We're trying to move in a direction where it's positive. I in think a positive direction. And conversations like this are better than we're not angry, but we see that there's flaws with the world that could be solved, and we're advocating for uh, measured responses to those problems. Well, we're saying there's problems. There's always going to be problems. What we're saying is that we believe that people can think the way they need to think, move to where they need to move, and make decisions that are positive. Mm-hmm. We're we're very positive here. We yeah. we know it can happen. Let's just let's just make it happen and keep moving in that direction. Don't give up. Uh, again, it's a journey. It's not a destination. I know people can do it. There's a there's a lot of smart people in here, in this country, and in the world, all different places. They're smart in that they know a lot about one thing, and that's why we need everyone. Mm-hmm. But everybody is smart. If they would stop following these pipe dreams, back up and start thinking about it, everybody is smart. And it's not about education. It's just about stopping and just thinking about what what reality is. Mm-hmm. This is reality, and even even the it's not about it's not about education. It's just about people waking up, and 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 everybody's intelligent, and education just gives you tools. It doesn't make you smart. Uh, everybody's smart, and and even those workers they say, "Oh, I'm not leaving here." Why? Because they know. This is my home. And so think about what needs to happen to keep your home there, to keep what you need. That's what needs to be infused into our government. Hmm. Not believing lies, not believing pipe dreams or unicorns, and then it doesn't happen, they blame China. That's not a solution. Mm -hmm. And they can understand that because because they're smart people. Anyway, I think that's a good place to close. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, well, you know, we we can talk forever because we we care. 
David, you care, I care, and that's why we're doing this, because we talk and we listen. And I'm going to encourage everyone, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what people are saying. We'll see you in the next one, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.